Let's open our Bibles to the 10th chapter of Romans. Thank you, brothers Newell and David Nathan. Romans chapter 10, the great epistle of our beloved brother Paul to the saints, the beloved of God, the elect of God that were in the city of Rome. I read to you the first nine verses of Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, Who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith, which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen and amen. amen. The Epistle to the Romans. When we started in Romans chapter 1, at the beginning of this particular sermon series, we found the Gentiles condemned in that first chapter, because God had revealed the truth of His eternal power and Godhead to them, in the natural creation, so that they were without excuse. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is a sermon being preached every day, and a sermon being preached every night, in every language and dialect of the entire earth. And men know there is a Creator God, but they reject Him, because they don't want a God dictating the terms of their lives. So they make images up to worship those images instead of God. That was all taught to us in the first chapter, where the apostle condemned Gentiles. When he had opened the epistle, he described his audience in Rome as those that were the called of Jesus Christ in verse 6, the beloved of God in verse 7, the saints in verse 7 as well. And he had said to them that he wanted desperately and had for a long time to come and visit them so that they could be mutually encouraged by their mutual faith. He says in verse 12, that is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. That is why I would like to come and see you. You believe the gospel and I believe the gospel and together We can rejoice in it and encourage each other. And so he says in verse 15, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Preaching is for believers. 
because it's believers that benefit and realize the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 of Romans condemned the Jews. He takes up a very different category of people from chapter 1 because chapter 1 is describing those that only had the natural creation to condemn them, and that was the Gentiles. But chapter 2 describes those that had the written law of God, and those were the Jews, and they were condemned in chapter 2. Chapter 3 furthers that condemnation with verses that we're very familiar with from 9 through 18, where it says, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, and that is our state by nature. We do not understand, we do not care, we do not seek God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So God must make a change in us for us to ever seek Him, and for us to ever understand, or for, ever, for us to ever do anything that would please Him, including even fearing Him appropriately. But in this third chapter, there is introduced to us the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, that we have been justified freely by His grace, in verse 24, because 23 is the one that we know, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then we came into chapter 4. The apostle has condemned the Gentiles that they need a Savior. He's condemned the Jews that the law cannot save them. They need a Savior. He has introduced the Savior... And then he takes the Jews back to their favorite figure of all, the father of the nation, Abraham. Abraham is the singular, most popular example of faith in the Bible. His event in Genesis chapter 15, when God called him out to survey the stars of heaven and to count them, and then the Lord told Abraham, so shall thy seed be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's all that is said in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. When we get into Romans, the apostle is going to use the word counted, the word accounted, the word imputed, and the word reckoned, because that act by Abraham, God marked it as the evidence that Abraham was a righteous man. Abraham did not become a righteous man by believing in Genesis 15, 6 because he was believing in Genesis 14 when he led 318 trained servants in warfare against four kings out of Mesopotamia. Abraham was already a believer in Genesis chapter 13 when he built an altar at Bethel and worshipped the Lord. He was already a worshiper of God in Genesis chapter 12 when he left Ur of the Chaldees to come into Canaan. But it was that singular event that God making a promise and Abraham believing it and the Bible noting it that the New Testament repeats over and over in Romans and in Galatians and in James. And so that's Romans chapter 4 because the apostle Paul took the Jews to condemn them And this is important for understanding chapter 10. He took them back to Abraham. Now Abraham was 400 years before the law of Moses. The Jews were putting their emphasis for their salvation. They were putting their stock, their trust, to be able to stand before God as justified and righteous people in the law of Moses. 
But here, Abraham is declared as being righteous 400 years before there was a Moses. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul notes and asks the Jews rhetorically, when God declared that Abraham was a righteous man by the evidence of his faith, was Abraham circumcised or not circumcised? Well, the event is in Genesis chapter 15. Circumcision wasn't given to Abraham until Genesis 17. So he was uncircumcised. So the two great pillars of Jewish confidence that when they died, they would stand before God are taken away in Abraham because the law was still 400 years away and because circumcision was still two chapters away in Genesis 17. So there is the example, and Paul has been building his case all the way through the epistle when we get to Romans chapter 10. And he has shown them that Abraham was declared righteous by faith without the works of the law. Abraham was declared righteous by faith without circumcision. Then we chapter 5, which you read last evening, we read about the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us when we were yet sinners. We read about it when we were yet without strength. God sent his son to die for us, for the ungodly. We read that scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but Christ died for us. We read that we were justified by his blood and will be saved from wrath through him because he now lives for us. We read that in verse 10 that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son and he's living at God's right hand to never lose a single one of us that he died for. And he won't, as he said in John six thirty nine. And then verse 11 said, not only so, not only those good things in verses 6 through 10, but we have received the atonement. We've been put at one with God again. Amen. Atonement means at one, just as it is spelled. We were separated from God by our sins, but the Lord Jesus Christ took those sins out of the way and put us at one again. And in verses 12 through 19, you read about the second Adam. The fabulous, glorious doctrine of representation that the Lord Jesus Christ came as the second Adam to stand in our place for righteousness. Adam stood in our place in the Garden of Eden and he sinned, and his sin causes every death since then, including babies. They die because they're guilty of the sin of Adam. It's called original sin. It's called federal headship of Adam. It's called the doctrine of representation. And it's powerful. All you have to do is look around and look at the death that has reigned in the world for 6,000 years because men are guilty even from conception. Why do you think there's a miscarriage? Don't try to tell me that there's innocence in the womb when there's a miscarriage because the miscarriage is death. Death is the wage of sin. What is the sin since the unborn child, according to Romans 9, isn't capable of good or evil yet? What is the sin? It's the sin of the first Adam. And every time we look in the mirror, we realize that the first Adam is taking us down. Every time we go to a funeral, you can be, you can be thankful that you're seeing a living demonstration of Romans 5 and the first Adam. But there's another Adam. Because it says the first Adam was a figure of him that was to come. And 4,000 years after the first Adam, the seed of the woman arrived. 
And the seed of the woman has bruised the serpent's head. And by his obedience, we've been made righteous. Then look at the, the last two verses of Romans 5 tell us, Moreover, the law entered. 2,500 years after Adam condemned the race of humanity, the law entered. Moses went up on Mount Sinai and came back down. That's what Romans 5.20 is speaking of, that the offense might abound. That God can show us just how sinful we all are. We're condemned by Adam's sin, and Adam gave us a sin nature, but then God gave us 718 commandments to the church of the Old Testament, and they broke them every day. And all you have to do is read them and realize how difficult it would have been to have ever kept all the intricate details of Moses' Old Testament law. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. God took His people... In the Old Testament, they were the Jews primarily. There were some scattered Gentiles brought in, like a Rahab from the city of Jericho. But that was the church of God. And the form of worship they had was the law of God, and its purpose was to condemn them. Can you imagine going to church every Sabbath day, and I'm speaking slightly as a fool, going to church every Sabbath day just to be reminded that there isn't a sacrifice for sin. That there isn't anything to put away your sins. That when you offer that animal as a burnt offering or as a sin offering or as a peace offering, it only covers you until the next time you sin. Probably before you got home. And so it made the offense abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Not only do we look in the mirror and see the effect of the first Adam and are thankful for the second Adam, but we look at the law of God and we're thankful for the second Adam because he saved us from that law as well. So we're sinners by Adam's one sin in Eden. We're sinners by the sin nature we have from Adam. And we're sinners because we sin every day. So in three ways we're condemned. But where sin abounded... Grace did much more abound. Romans 5.20 tells us, That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life is not a possibility. It's not a might-be thing. It is an absolute certainty of reigning. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I shall lose none of them that the Father gave me. For as in Adam all die. Can you tell me of an exception? There are none. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. All that are in Christ shall be made alive. And how does a person get into the Lord Jesus Christ? according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. We're chosen in Christ. Christ was chosen to come and die for us 4,000 years after creation at the cross of Calvary. And so begins the chain of the phases of salvation that saves us. Romans chapter 6 is a practical chapter on since we have been delivered from the claims of the law, we should live for Him who saved us. Chapter 7 describes the conflict that the believer has inside between his old man and his new man. Chapter 8 
starts, returns to a, a, a listing of good things that are in store. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Well, we, we had that in chapter 5, which you read last evening. But now after two practical chapters of the struggle that we have with sin in a practical way, Romans chapter 8 describes the lack of condemnation, that we have the Spirit within us, which proves that we're the sons of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And there is a tremendous event coming in which this creation that is now under the pain of sin, everything that you can see that dies from your kittens to the tree and the rose bush in your yard is because of sin. It's a sin-cursed world, and it groans in travail and pain under that sin. But when God sends the Lord Jesus Christ back to raise us from the dead, He is going to deliver the whole creation from the bondage of corruption. Because He's going to pull us out of the ground, and our bodies that had corrupted are going to be glorified. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. It's here in Romans 8. And we'll enter into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. We'll never die again. We'll have glorified bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. We'll have no sin, corruption, or death in them. And the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire. Now Romans 9-11 through 11 introduce a, a, the situation with Israel. What are we going to do with Israel and why aren't they believing the gospel? Why are there few believing them when it, they were God's church of the Old Testament? And Paul expresses in the first five verses of Romans chapter 9 that he had a great burden for them. And he goes on and describes, and this is key to us understanding Romans 9, 10, 11 is what it says in verse 6. Right. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. God had these great promises in Abraham to you and your seed. Will I give this land, meaning heaven? So many want to take money out of your pocket for F-16s for Israel. But Abraham knew that it wasn't that piece of sandy, pretty much worthless land at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Abraham tells us plainly in Hebrews chapter 11 that he understood God's promise to referring to heaven. And that's where Abraham is right now. And in fact, heaven, one of heaven's names is Abraham's bosom. The land, the victory over enemies, that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And your seed will be numerous as the stars of heaven. Those enormous blessings, as Paul enters into Romans chapter 9 and reminds his audience of those great blessings, he has to say in verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Those promises are still true and they are going to be fulfilled. You need to understand this when you look at the nation and realize that the majority of the nation killed their Messiah. The majority of Israel killed the Lord Jesus Christ. How could that happen? Because they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And we have to know that, and we have to remember that to understand Romans 9 through 11. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. If the nation of Israel is this big, there was only a part of it that God considered His true Israel. And it had always, it had often been that way. The superset of the nation 
those that claimed Abraham as their father, and the subset of those that were truly the children of God. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. And this is one of those examples in the Bible where we must rightly divide the word of truth. So when we find the word Israel in Romans 9, 10, 11, we've got to ask and answer the question, which Israel is it? Is it national Israel, the superset of everyone that descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or is it God's Israel, called the Israel of God in Galatians chapter 6? Now Paul's already introduced this theme in Romans chapter 2 and verse, the last two verses when he said, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, whose circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the flesh. There he drew a distinction between the external Jew that was circumcised in his flesh, and so in a doctor's office could prove that he was a Jew, and by his birth certificate could prove that he was a Jew, but he wasn't truly a Jew in the sight of God. Because a true Jew is one that has a circumcised heart. And so as we come down through these verses, the Apostle Paul then, after having stated the doctrine that they are not all Israel which are of Israel, describes God's election. How that God would elect one and pass over another. First of all, it was Sarah's, Sarah's son Isaac versus Hagar's Ishmael. God chose Isaac. God rejected Ishmael and his mother. Then it was Rebekah that had twins in her womb. Jacob and Esau. God chose Isaac. God reject, God chose Jacob. God rejected Esau. And it says from Malachi chapter one, where the quote is made, I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau because I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The mercy of God is entirely dependent upon God's choice. Just like it was in the Old Testament, of all the nations of the earth, there was this one scrawny little, few in number nation of Israel. And God said, I set my love upon you because I set my love upon you. I didn't set my love upon you because you were great or powerful or numerous. I set my love upon you because you were few, small, and weak. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I'm thankful for that. Because he has set his love and mercy upon someone else that is small and weak. Me. And I'm thankful that 1 Corinthians 1 tells me that the character traits of most of God's elect are the poor, the weak, and the base. That he may bring to nothing those people who think they are something. And so the people of God have generally been the poor of the earth, just like the Israelites were, shepherds that were slaves in Egypt. The the elect of God have generally been the poor. And so God chose Jacob and God rejected Esau. And he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. There is no human will that gets the mercy of God. There is no human effort that gets the mercy of God. It is God that bestows his mercy according to the good pleasure of his own will. As it's said in Ephesians chapter 1. And then he mentions Pharaoh. I raised Pharaoh up for the purpose of showing my power in him. And he says in verse 18, Therefore God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. So it's God's will to show mercy towards some, and it's God's will to harden others in their own sins. He doesn't make any man sin. He doesn't have to. All he has to do is withdraw his restraining grace and you or I would leap at any sin. 
Now, there may, there may be some sins that you're saying to me right now, preacher, I want to promise you one thing. I wouldn't do that. You would do it in one second if God withdrew His restraining grace. Because why do the men that do those things when they abuse themselves among themselves, when they're like dogs, as the Bible calls them, why do they do that? Because God has turned them over to that reprobate mind. All He has to do is step back and turn a person over, and they will pretend they're dogs with one another and defile themselves with each other. You say, well, I wouldn't do... Oh, yes, you would. And the point being... That when God, when it says God hardens a man like Pharaoh, he doesn't have to infuse evil into Pharaoh. All he has to do is stand back and let the natural arrogance and pride of Pharaoh come up, who all his life, it didn't matter whether he asked for another bowl of Cocoa Krispies for breakfast, he had somebody run to get those Cocoa Krispies. He had never been told no in his life. And he has a man come in and stand before him and say, let my three million people go that are building your capital cities. The Lord said, let my people go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? We call those famous last words. God didn't have to put those words into Pharaoh. Pharaoh had been raised his whole life to say something like that against Moses. What was Moses' profession? Shepherd for 40 years. What the Egyptians think of shepherds? Despised shepherds. So we've got this despicable shepherd standing there saying, the Lord God of heaven says, let your workforce go. We're going to leave Egypt. We're going to emigrate out. Three million of us. So I'm wanting to explain to you when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't infuse evil. All he had to do is put a Moses in front of him. And so when it says, I will harden his heart, all it meant is I'm not going to give him any grace to understand. I'm just going to leave him to himself, and he's going to think your proposition is ridiculous, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh. Now this is Romans 9. This is what needs to be taught everywhere so that we properly appreciate the salvation that we have by God's grace, choosing us to it, and not leaving us like he did Pharaoh. Because we would do exactly what Pharaoh did. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If God's will is so pervasive, then why does he still hold men accountable? You know, it almost sounds like a good question. But we don't ask questions like that of God. So the next verse says, nay, but, O man. Nay, stop. Stop talking. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. I will make a vessel to honor, and I will make a vessel to dishonor. What if God, willing to show his... Let me skip back to these... Vessels of dishonor. What if God, willing to show his wrath and power on the vessels of wrath, according to Romans 9 and verse 22, and verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared into glory. Well, when did he afore prepare them unto glory? 
when He chose them in Christ Jesus before the world began. And so we've covered all this ground. What we don't want to do is go to a missionary conference in a church that strings out Romans 10.1 behind the pulpit. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved because there's nine chapters that went before Romans 10 that you better understand before you think you understand the first verse of chapter 10. So that's what we do. And so in Romans 9, 22 through 24, the apostle makes very clear that there are vessels of mercy. There are vessels of honor that are some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles. And Paul was one of them that God has chosen to eternal life according to the good pleasure of his will. And there are vessels of wrath and vessels of dishonor that he has hardened and left in their sins. A large part of the Jews and a large part of the Gentiles. And so Romans 9 teaches us that. And then Paul proves it by two quotes from Hosea, two quotes from Isaiah, as he starts to finish out Romans chapter 9. But he comes to 30, and here's the issue that 10 deals with. What shall we say then? Since there's an election within Israel, and God has only chosen part of the nation, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, It doesn't say that he called the Jews. He called some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. That's Romans 9.30. Gentiles are believing the gospel who had previously worshipped stumps, stones, totem poles, and the sun. But Israel which had all of God's blessings of his ministry and tabernacle and temple and priests and his word, Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why is this happening? How is it happening? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Our brother David this morning presented Psalm 48 to us. And in Psalm 48 it describes the beauty of Zion, which was the capital city, another name for Jerusalem, and the mountain on which that city was built, and the beauty of it. But in Zion, in Jerusalem, God raised up a stumbling stone that caused offense to Jews. And what was that? It was a Messiah that was born so pitifully poor as Jesus of Nazareth and then died on a Roman cross when they were hoping that their Messiah would ride on a white horse and deliver them from Rome and reestablish Israel as the power of the the nations. And it didn't happen. And so there was this stumbling stone. Even though he performed so many miracles, you know, even in John chapter 1, among those that were born, Even those that were born again, do you know what they would say when they heard about Jesus of Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Everything about him was poor. There was no comeliness that we should desire him. And the Jews stumbled over him. And it says this many times throughout the New Testament. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, To you that believe, he is precious. But unto them which don't believe, he is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, just like it describes here, unto which they were appointed. God had appointed that the Lord Jesus Christ would not be a pleasing person in his in in what they considered he should have been. Right. Now he was 
See, to us, he's precious. And for me to even say that there wasn't anything comely about him, we hardly even know what that means. Everything was comely about him because we're believers. Wherefore, what shall we say then? The Apostle Paul is bringing this, this development along since God has chosen this Israel. Why is this Israel having a problem with believing the gospel? Because Jesus Christ does not match what they think the Messiah was supposed to be. And so we come to Romans 10.1. And for all those of you that want me to race through this chapter, and for me that wanted to race through this chapter, and for me that intended to make a lot of progress today, I hope you all understand that we are going to understand every verse of this in its context, every word of it in its context, so that we don't miss anything. Amen. Romans 10.1. Brethren. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul had a great heart's desire. In his heart, he was burdened. It says in Romans chapter 9, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Now that is a real burden for souls. And, And he prayed to God for the salvation of Israel. We have to ask ourselves... And I've tried to show that to you in 9.6. I was 19 years old when I first heard Romans 9.6. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Are you kidding? Does it say that in the Bible? They are not all Israel which are of Israel. That almost doesn't make sense. What does that mean? And I've explained it to you. There's the whole nation, but there's the part that God considers His seed. Just like there were two sons, Isaac, Ishmael, Nope, yes. Two twins, Jacob, Esau. Nope, yes. There's Israel. And so when we come to Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. What Israel is it? And without belaboring the point, we can't go back through Romans 9 again and point out that Paul would not be praying for vessels of dishonor. Paul would not be desiring the salvation of vessels of wrath. Paul would not be desiring that those that were not of Israel, because he says, they're Israel. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is. He's not praying for those that are not Israel. He's praying for elect Israel. Because it's elect Israel that's causing a question. Non-elect Israel not believing the gospel doesn't cause a question at all. It's elect Israel that didn't believe. And so the apostle had written in the four verses preceding Romans 10, the last four verses of Romans 9, what shall we say then? Wherefore? What's going on? And Romans 10 is going to help us understand that there was blindness in part assigned to even elect Israel so that you could hear the gospel. Because if the apostles had had all their energy sucked up by elect Israel, it wouldn't have gotten to us. You say, well, God could have got, God chooses the way He gets His gospel to us. And the way God chose to get the gospel to us is to blind even part of elect Israel. I like that. But we better not be high minded, but fear. Because if God cut off some of the natural branches of the external, local, believing, faith based gospel church and graft some of us Gentiles in, we better be careful. Because he's able to graft those branches that he cut off right back in. And he's able to cut us Gentiles off. But that's chapter 11. 
Romans 10, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So we ask, what is real? And brethren, when we look at this verse and we look at the verses that following, that are following, here is my burden for you. You have to remember that the apostle was dealing with Jewish legalism. Legalism does not mean we don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang around with those that do. That isn't legalism. That's what simple people think legalism is. Legalism is not the strictness that we show in some of the things we do. Legalism is a law that you think needs to be kept in order to get saved. A law in order to get to heaven. And so Paul was constantly dealing with Jewish legalists who thought that the law of Moses had to be kept in order to go to heaven. That is a legalist. Right. And see, we don't believe anything like that. When somebody comes in and meets us and they hear a little bit about us or they look at the website and they say, oh, you're so strict. You know, you're legalists. No, we're not legalists. We're, we're less legalists than anybody you've ever met or that you are. Because if you want to find a people that don't believe you have to do anything in order to be saved, it's us. We're not legalists at all. It's all by the grace of God. Jesus Christ satisfied all of God's legal claims against us. So the Bible says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? We're the opposite of legalists. Yeah, we are strict. And we do sweat the small stuff. Because the Lord sweats the small stuff. But when we look at these verses, you have to remember that. That Paul is answering this huge problem of Jewish legalism that he's been answering all the way through it. Paul had to spend most of his life fighting Jewish legalism. They, those Jews would come out of Jerusalem, even some that were converted, some of God's elect that were saved, and they would preach a false doctrine. And that is you had to add circumcision and the law of Moses to the finished work of Christ in order to be saved. It was horrible. When you read the number of chapters in the New Testament where Paul was dealing with this, either directly or indirectly, it's weighty. And it helps us understand his choice of language. But we've got to remember that. We've got to remember the Jewish issue that he is raising here of what is going on that they are, they are rejecting the gospel. Even elect Israel is rejecting the gospel, but Gentiles are believing it. So that's a weighty issue that we've got to think about. Then we've got the Arminian issue. You know, the average missionary Baptist church or independent fundamentalist Baptist church that would string Romans 10.1 up over a platform, and what they mean by it is, God wants everyone to get saved, and we need to get out and spread the gospel to everyone to get as many saved as we can get saved. Because God wants to save everyone, He just needs our help to get the job done. And so they preach Romans 10.1 entirely differently. That's the way I was trained. So we've got that burden in our minds. Then we've got another burden, and that is, and this is the one that I think is by far more important, the personal application of it to us. I want every one of us to believe on Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior from sin, and to believe it more today than we did yesterday, and to believe it more tomorrow than we do today, for the comfort and assurance of our own lives and eternal life. And I want us to have a burden for souls in the gospel, true sense of the word, that we ought to have. If Paul has continual sorrow in his heart for elect people that don't know the truth, I want continual sorrow in my heart for elect people that don't have the truth. And I want you to have that. 
So that to me is the most important thing to get at Romans 10, 1 and the verses that follow is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I've already quoted a verse this morning, 1 John 5, 13. This is why John wrote, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. There isn't a single chapter in the New Testament written to those that don't believe. There's not a single verse in the Bible written to those that don't believe. Just think about that for a minute. It's easy once you think about it. Oh yeah, because it was written to churches. All the epistles are written to churches. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, he tells us why he wrote. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John and Paul, both being moved by the Holy Spirit, have the same goal, and it's my goal for you, to increase your confidence of eternal life. Because did you hear Bildad this morning from Job 25? How can a man be justified before God? How can he be clean that's born of a woman? The heavens are not pure in God's sight. Dominion and fear are with him. What can we do that are less than worms? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. But I want to lay hold of Him by faith today greater than a, more than I've ever laid hold of Him by faith. And I want to encourage you to do the same. By the Word of God and by this passage of Scripture that He has given us. Look at 2 Timothy 2.10. I do this by... Repetition is how you learn. Right. Repetition is how you learn. If you didn't take flashcards home with multiplication equations written on them, you still wouldn't know what 6 times 6 is, and I hope you do. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10, it is repetition that sticks these things into your minds. I want you to remember these. When, when you are explaining to someone, Romans 10.1, and you, well, here's how you would do it, as simply as it can be done. Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You should ask them, what Israel is that? They're going to say, what do you mean? Well, there's more than one Israel in the Bible. And we need to find out which Israel it is. What do you mean there's more than one Israel in the Bible? There's only one Israel. Either you're an Israelite or you're not an Israelite. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. There's only one. No, you would take them to Romans 9, 6. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And I hope they'll do what I did when I was 19. Boing. Oh, Lord. What does... Wow. Does that change some things that follow in Romans 9, 10, 11? Do you remember some of you the first time you understood that? So you go to Romans 9, 6 first. Then you go to this verse second. That's all you need to explain Romans 10, 1 to them so far. Because we're answering there's more than one Israel. In 2 Timothy 2.10, the apostle explained this about his life. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul tells us here that his ministry, his labors, and what he endured, and he endured a lot. He was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was starving, he was cold. He was in perils in the sea. He was in perils in the wilderness. He was in perils in city. When you read his resume in 2 Corinthians 11, what a hero we had that brought the gospel to us and it was all by the grace of God. The Apostle Paul would say, I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 
But thank the Lord for the Apostle Paul. And he said, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. What drove Paul? Was it because God was trying to save everyone and Paul was going to see how many names he could get written down in the book of life? Not a chance. The Bible tells us very plainly that every name in the book of life was written there before the foundation of the world. Paul thoroughly understood election and predestination and that God's purpose and grace and salvation had been given to him in Christ Jesus before the world began. Because he said so in the chapter preceding this one. Verse 9, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So he's explaining, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. And this, this, this is the obvious question that should come up. Well, if they're elect, and I've heard this so many times, if they're elect, then it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to go to heaven. If they're not elect, it doesn't matter what they're going to do, they're going to go to hell. So what does it matter? So why is Paul enduring all things for them? Because there is a salvation beyond being saved from hell to heaven. And that's where so many cut the Bible so short. There is a great salvation in the gospel that Tony wants you to be convinced of. Gospel salvation goes beyond election. It goes beyond justification. It goes beyond regeneration. And that's the salvation that is in Romans 10.1. Are you with me? Because this says the elect need a salvation that is in addition to eternal glory. And the reason we know that it's in addition to is because of two words. The word also. When you have also, we have A and we also have B. We have two things. So you should take a pen and mark also, and you should take the word with and circle it and draw a line between the two of them. Because when you have also and with, there are two things there. There is eternal glory... And there is a salvation that Paul wanted the elect to have that they didn't have by election. And it wasn't their eternal glory. It was another salvation that he wanted them also to have in addition to eternal glory, along with eternal glory. And what is that? That is the glorious news of the gospel, of what God has done for us that causes us to rejoice. It's the wonderful instruction of the gospel that tells us what we can do for God in response for what He has done for us. Back to Romans chapter 10. That's the two-step approach to Romans 10 if you don't want the hundred-step approach. And I have given you a large part of the hundred-step approach this morning. Again, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And I'm going to preach on soul winning in the second service today. I'm going to preach on soul winning from Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. I'm going to put some heat on all of you as to whether you're soul winners or not the Bible way. I'm going to put some heat on me as to whether I'm truly a Bible soul winner. But we want to be soul winners the way that it's being described to us right here in Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, what Israel? Elect Israel. What salvation? Gospel salvation of bringing the good news to God's elect who are already on the way to heaven, but who need to hear what God has done for them, what Christ has done for them, what they can do for God, how they ought to assemble in churches, how they can have the more abundant life while on earth, and so forth and so on, 
and it's large. What comes in the gospel. This is a salvation dependent upon Paul. Do you know that your salvation is dependent upon me? In gospel salvation that I'm talking about? Look at 1 Corinthians 15.2. Tony taught me this recently. 1 Corinthians 15.2. I mentioned Tony because I want you to get used to Tony. Tony's an associate pastor of the Church of Greenville. And he travels well and free. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. That's the gospel. That's Paul's gospel. This wasn't any other false gospel. This was Paul's gospel. The Corinthian saints stood in that gospel. They had received it. They had believed it. They were baptized. Verse 29 tells us they've been baptized. But he says in verse 2, By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Well, how can you believe in vain when Paul knew knew your belief was sincere and he had baptized you? How can you lose memory and lose salvation because you lost memory of the gospel? If you forget the gospel, what salvation do you lose? Is your name taken out of the book of life? Not a chance. Is your name taken away from those that Jesus Christ died for on the cross? Not a chance. What salvation do you lose when you forget the gospel? The hope of the resurrection of the dead. Because in verse 19, the apostle says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If our religion, which is a religion of self-denial while we're in this world, we don't fornicate with the fornicators, we don't get drunk with the drunkards, we don't do the things that they do, we deny ourselves their so-called pleasures. It's a life of self-denial. If that's all there is to Christianity, we are of all men most miserable. It is the worst religion on earth. Unless you know there's going to be a resurrection of the dead and you're going to live eternity as a joint heir with Jesus Christ in heaven. And so the apostle says, what are you going to lose if you, if you forget what I preached to you because the Corinthians had forgotten? They had preachers come up in the pulpits at Corinth and were preaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. That's what the next 15 verses are about. And what were they losing? Their confidence and hope of eternal life and the resurrection of the dead for a whole other life that makes our self-denial here nothing. Absolutely nothing in the light of that. So see, there's gospel salvation. So when we use the word save, when somebody says, when were you saved? You need to ask, what salvation are you talking about? Just like Paul wanted to save Israel. You have to say, what Israel was he talking about? And what salvation was he talking about? Somebody would say, your form of doctrine, you have to work so hard at it. We just believe that saved means saved. Well, I'd still like to know what it means. Well, it just means to be saved. Tell me what it means. Well, it means to get me out of hell. So that's the only salvation? Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14 says, 
Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Is that the one you're talking about? Delivering a soul from hell? Proverbs 23, 14. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. Listen, if I could get all of you out of hell and your name's in the book of life, would you all come up here and let me beat you with the rod? I'll be first in line. If it was that simple, I'm first in line, I'll let any one of you beat me with the rod. But it says save a soul from hell. But see, they don't, they don't ever want to deal with words. They don't want to deal with meanings. They don't want to ask the question, what kind of salvation is from the rod of a father? It's salvation from the hell of this life and from living a hellacious life and from an early and untimely death. Right. That's what it means. Because hell in the Bible, often in passages like that, is referring to the grave. And when you discipline a son, you can teach him some discipline so that he won't commit the foolish sins that lead to an untimely death. But it says, soul from hell. You say, well, why is the Bible written like that? So that the majority of people cannot understand it. That is why it's written like that. That is what the Bible says about itself. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. The disciples came and asked Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? Don't you know they can't understand? Because Jesus answered, because it is not given to them to understand. It is given to you to understand, and I will explain it as soon as we leave them. Thank Yes. But here it is. Here's where I'm building up to. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I was also 19 when I heard the words, the explanation for that verse. The Apostle Paul would not have told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth unless the Bible has a lot of divisions in it. Hello, that's deep. The Apostle Paul would not have said to divide the Bible unless the Bible had some divisions to be made. That's, that's very simple. It's not deep. But there's few men that want to put forth the work to do the division. And so when we see the word salvation, we say, what salvation is it? When we see the word Israel, we say, what Israel is it? When we see the word church, we say, which church is it? Is it the church of all God's family or is it a local church? When we see Jesus Christ created the worlds and we see Jesus Christ was thirsty, is it Jesus Christ in his divine nature or Jesus Christ in his human nature? And on and on we go because that's the way the Bible's written. Look at 1 Timothy 4.16 because your salvation depends upon me. So I hope that once a month you pray for me. In addition to praying for me every day. Of all God's ministers, I need prayers the most. And that's not because I'm the best. It's because I'm the worst. And it's only by God's grace that I'm anything at all. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul to Timothy, an ordained minister of the Apostle Paul and his favorite minister and his best minister, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Timothy, take care of two things, your personal life and the doctrine. Continue in them, those two things. For in doing this, those two things, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Look at the verse. Timothy needed to get saved. And Timothy's audiences needed to stay saved. And Timothy getting saved and his audiences staying saved was dependent on two things. Timothy guarding his personal life, and Timothy carefully guarding the doctrine of God. Because if a minister 
falls into carnality and sin, he will take a church down with him into carnality and sin. And if a minister gets his doctrine wrong, he is going to take his people down into false doctrine. The elect in that church are still going to go to heaven, but they're going to live a carnal life and bring God's displeasure and chastening upon them, and they're going to believe a lie and not know the joyful sound of truth. Do you understand? There is benefits in the gospel. Please pray for me. I'm scared to death every day about misdividing a word of the word of God. You say, well, why? it's good fear. It's healthy fear. I don't ever want to step out into left field by myself unless the Lord gives me complete assurance from his word that I'm on safe ground. Pray for me. Pray for me that I'll take heed to my personal life. God is very merciful. His mercy is higher than the heaven when it pertains to me. And I love him for it, and his mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. His mercy endureth forever. There's five phases of salvation. You know them well. The eternal phase of salvation, God elected us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That was in eternity past, before he created Adam. He had already chosen the Lord Jesus Christ. He had already chosen us in Christ. He had inscribed our names in the book of life. And construction began in the eternal kingdom that we're going to enjoy forever, all before the world began. If you want more, then go look up the sermon before the world began. The eternal phase of salvation is election. The legal phase of salvation is when Jesus Christ paid the price to make that choice of us possible. Jesus died on the cross and put away our sins. That's the legal phase. It took place 2,000 years ago. Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he died on the cross and he paid a substitutionary death for the elect that had been assigned to him because he said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Amen. Then there's the vital phase. We've been chosen by God the Father. We have been redeemed by Christ the Son. And then we come into existence. I came into existence April 12th, 1957. I have a corrupt nature from Adam and from my beloved father and my departed mother, as you all do. A corrupt nature. My nature is not fit for heaven. My nature hates God. My nature hates the Bible. My nature loves sin. My nature loves this world. My nature willingly followed the devil. I was depraved. And so I needed to be born again because that first birth just got me the old man. So the Holy Spirit came along as the wind blows where it listeth, according to John 3, 8. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Live to Jonathan Crosby. And the Spirit of God regenerated me and gave me a new man. And all of a sudden, Johnny Motorcycle was reading the death of death and the death of Christ, the reformed doctrine of predestination by Lorraine Bettner, the sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink, God's will, man's will, and free will, a collection of essays by Jay Green. What in the world happened to Jonathan Crosby? I don't know if I was born again then or that's when the Lord revealed himself to me. Because I don't know when, I don't know exactly when the wind blew. But I was born again. So we've all got to be born again. That's the vital phase of salvation. It's called a salvation. Right. Titus 3 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us Amen. 
by the washing of regeneration. So being regenerated or being born again or being quickened is called a salvation. Then I hear the gospel and I believe it and I'm converted. I am changed. And conversion is a lifelong process. Peter still needed to be converted after three and a half years with Jesus Christ. Jesus told him the night before he was crucified, or the night of his crucifixion, he told Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen your brethren. Now Peter was already an apostle, but Peter needed to be converted. And Paul had to convert Peter again in Galatians chapter 2 when he played the hypocrite with Jews that came down from Jerusalem to Antioch of Syria. So we need to be converted. And that's what Paul wants for the elect in Romans 10.1. He wants to convert them because they're trusting in the law of Moses for their salvation. And there is no salvation in the law of Moses. Eternal justification is how I'm using the word saved there. You know what? There's a salvation that is still coming. The Apostle Paul said, now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Hello? Paul, you're still not fully saved? Nope. Romans 13, 11. I was chosen in Christ before the world began. Christ died for me at the cross. I was born again. I've heard the gospel. I've believed it from Ananias there at Damascus. But I still need to be saved. And that is glorified in heaven. And it's called a salvation. It's called an adoption. To wit, it's called a redemption. We're waiting for our adoption. To wit, the redemption of our bodies. Jesus is coming back to get our bodies. Jesus on the cross, in that legal phase of salvation, paid a price for your body, soul, and spirit. Every bit of you is going to be restored and glorified by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we haven't had that one yet, so we're still not saved, in that sense of the word. Romans 10.1. Those are the five phases of salvation. Men used to think about things like that, but hey... Now if you can just have a 15-minute sermonette where you're telling stories about the Super Bowl and some of the commercials that you watched and let the praise band see if they can break 140 decibels, that's okay. We'll just forget the phases of salvation. It used to be called the Ordo Salutis. In Latin, the order of salvation. Because it's laid out in the Bible. That God did things for us before the world began. He did things for us at the cross. He did things for us in our lifetime. When were you born again? Don't... Don't try to tell me because you don't really know when you were born again, but you know when changes began to take place in your life so that you cared about the things of heaven that you had not cared about before. The apostle, I mean, John was born again in his mother's womb. He was full of the Holy Ghost and leaping for joy while he was in his mother's womb. I like that one. Right. Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. This is elect Israel. The salvation is gospel conversion because look, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. These elect Israelites love God and are zealous for him and they are pursuing him with all their might, but not according to knowledge. Now see what I've said to you. What I've said to you is Romans 10.1 is talking about elect Israel that need to be taught some things about Jesus Christ so they won't be trusting the law of Moses. And I was cheating because I read ahead and read Romans 10. Because all you have to do is read a few verses ahead and you know that's what he's talking about. Because look, what is the salvation? The word saved is the last word of verse 1. What immediately does it say? For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So what's Paul trying to save them from? What's Paul trying to save them to? Well, this verse 2 is he's trying to save them to knowledge. What's he trying to save them from? Verse 3, 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness which is of God. So the salvation needed is not being born again. It's not justification. It's not election. It's not being atonement. It's not redemption. It's none of the, it's not being reconciled. God has done all those things through Jesus Christ. It is to be given some knowledge to know how we're going to stand before God justified so that we can answer, so that we can answer the Bildad that should be crying out from every one of our hearts and minds. How can a man be clean before God? How can a man be justified before God? How can a man that is less than a worm be accepted into heaven as a son of God? How can it possibly be? We need knowledge to know that. And that knowledge comes and tells us that we are the sons of God. And we go through our lives, the rest of our lives, knowing that we're the sons of God, crying, Abba, Father. Everything we see that is good, we thank our Father for. Everything that we see evil in our lives, we confess to our Father. Because we have knowledge that we are the sons of God. And that we're going to stand before Him one day by the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Is there a salvation in the gospel? The Bible says that the gospel brings life and immortality to light. If you never heard the gospel, you would not know about eternal life and immortality. Men like Ponce de Leon looked for the fountain of youth so that they could be forever young and live forever. We have something better. We have the blood of Christ, and it's a fountain open for uncleanness in Jerusalem where Jesus Christ will cause us to live forever by His shed blood. That comes by the gospel. The gospel comes to us by preachers that tell us about the promise made of eternal life before the world began. The gospel comes and tells us how we should believe on Jesus Christ that we might come in the unity of the faith and be protected from men who with cunning craftiness lie in wait to deceive. There are a lot of false teachers in the world and the gospel comes to save us from false teachers. Joseph Smith is the father of Mormonism. Mary Baker Eddy of of Christian Science. Ellen Harmon White of the Seventh-day Adventists. Benny Hinn of the Charismatics. Lord, thank you for your truth. We could be this day going down into a basement to an underground baptismal tank in order to be baptized for our dead relatives as a Mormon. It's called baptism for the dead. I might be coming to some of you men asking for your wives to be my spiritual wife. That's the polygamy of the Mormon church. Blessed be God and what He has given us through the gospel message and a salvation of saving us from lies and error to truth. The gospel brings the personal assurance of eternal life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. I do want to know. Then believe on the name of the Son of God. That gospel increases my confidence and my assurance of eternal life. I wouldn't know what to do to please God. The angel told Cornelius, send a Joppa for one Simon Peter. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Because Cornelius needed to be saved. Not to get his name written in the book of life. It was written there before the foundation of the world. Not to have his sins paid for. Jesus did that at the cross. Cornelius needed to know, how do you worship God in the New Testament? And so what did he learn about in Acts chapter 10 before we get to chapter 11? Cornelius and his whole household are baptized. You would never dream of baptism. 
as something that pleases the Creator God of heaven unless the Bible said getting dunked in water pleases the Lord Jehovah. And Cornelius found that out in the Lord's Supper and singing and and all the things we do in the New Testament and how we come together and we're united in one body is by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fellowship and the joy. These things have I written unto you in 1 John chapter 1 that ye might have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And these things have I written unto you that your joy might be full. The gospel comes to give us fellowship with God because if we didn't know that our way was made clear into heaven that when you get down on your knees beside your bed whether you're five or 55, heaven is opened to your prayers by Jesus Christ our Lord for fellowship with Him and that we can walk with Him every day. That I can go out of my deck when that sunshine is coming up because Charlie has called and said, get out of your cave and see that it's a beautiful day. And I go out there and just tell him because he's my father. And he gave me a beautiful day and he's, he's kissing my skin and he's warming the earth and the buds are popping out and it's a blue sky and green buds and green grass and life is wonderful and the brook is gurgling down there at the bottom of that hill. That's walking with God because I know that I'm His Son and He's my Father. And the fellowship that we have about these things because we're brethren of like precious faith, then I'm told what He doesn't want me to do so that I won't be chastened by Him. Because his chastening is like with a scourge and it's severe and it's good for us, but I don't want to be chastened. And he tells me how that I can have peace and rest for my soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He provides a rest for us by his finished work of Christ on the the cross of Calvary that even the Sabbath day and even the land of Canaan didn't offer the Israelites, but it's ours. And then he tells me how we can live in prosperity. He tells me how to train my children. He tells me how to work on the job. He tells me how to manage my money. My Father in heaven tells me all these things, and I wouldn't know any of them if I hadn't heard the gospel. Now, I I saved the worst for last because the best was first. And the first is Jesus Christ stood between heaven and earth and united God and me. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, lived for me and died for me to undo the consequences of the first Adam. That is what Romans 10.1 means. These poor Jews were stumbling over that stumbling stone because Jesus of Nazareth did not fit what they had thought their Messiah would be like. He died. He hung on a tree. It was They stumbled over that. Even some elect Israelites, by design and by appointment, so that the gospel could come to you and me. Brethren, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I want to see elect Israel come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. They love to worship God. They love the Lord Jehovah, but they don't have knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. They think they can establish their own by keeping the law of Moses. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Once you believe on Jesus Christ, you never think about the law of Moses again because the law, the law was just a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ right. who would satisfy the law positively and negatively, which I've already told you about today. Christ is the end of that law. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. If you break a single commandment of Moses' law, the entire condemnation of that law is on you for one. But the Lord Jesus Christ kept every single one for me and for you. How do do you know it's for you? 
How do I know it's for me? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. What salvation? It says saved. What salvation? Well, if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, election is a long time ago and it's not going to affect that. Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's not going to change that. I was either given to the Lord Jesus Christ or I wasn't. If I was given to him, he's going to raise me up again at the last day. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to regenerate me because only a regenerate man can ever believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are still two phases of salvation. If I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is going to save me from trusting in my own righteousness and put my confidence in Jesus Christ alone for standing before God. And furthermore, if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the evidence that I'm like Abraham. And when I stand before God, he's going to announce that I'm one of his elect. Because faith is the initial, along with repentance, the first step of proving that you're one of God's elect. Then you get baptized. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. See, the, ba- the Baptists do not like that verse. They hate that verse because it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. And they say, See? He that believeth not shall be damned. It doesn't say not get baptized. Well, if I said to my two of my sons, Sons, I, I want you to run to the store, and if, you'll bring me back a ga- if one of you will bring me back a gallon of milk, I'll give you $5. But if you won't run to the store, I'm going to take away $5. Now, I didn't say anything about getting the gallon of milk in the second clause, did I? But is that understood? It should be understood, and I'm not very good at this kind of stuff. I just stepped out on a plank, and it was slippery. And I don't, I don't like preaching that way. I hate little stories. I just want the Word of God. But Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Because what salvation is it talking about? It is talking about the two that I'm talking about right now. You are going to be saved from the false doctrine, delusion, and hopelessness of this world, and you are going to be saved in the great day of judgment when you stand before God because faith and baptism are two evidences that you are one of God's elect because if you're not one of God's elect, you will never sincerely believe on Jesus Christ and you will never sincerely be baptized. But we don't just want to believe and be baptized. We want to add all the good works of the New Testament to that as the Bible would say, so that we can lay hold of eternal life. We get our hands on eternal life by, well, 1 Timothy 6 says, by being willing to communicate and ready to distribute money. We should be willing to give to people. That's an evidence that we're one of God's elect. And we add to our faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. Eight things in Second Peter chapter 1. And if you do those things, you can make your calling and election sure. That's... That's gospel salvation of confirming to us that we're God's elect so that in that great day, when worth, I'm going to tell you, when you stand before God for a moment, unless you're really sure of the gospel, and that's my job to make you sure of the gospel, you're going to be thinking like Bildad. Who can be justified before God? How can a man be clean that's born of a woman? I'm less than a worm. One second of seeing God, you're going to think of yourself as a worm? We come into this church and we preach this gospel so that you can make your calling and election sure. Now you know I have to end that passage with verse 11 because I always do. If you'll believe, be baptized and add to your faith virtue and so forth, the eight things that are listed there. If you do these things, this is the Bible speaking, if you do these things, ye shall never fall. But an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly 
into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. People hear that we believe election. They say, well, if you're elect, then you're going to go to heaven. If you're not elect, you're not going to go to heaven. So it doesn't matter how you live. I, I say back to them, and how do you think you get to heaven? I made a decision for Jesus when I was three years old, and I can live any way I want to because I'm guaranteed heaven. And I, I say, I want to tell you about our doctrine of salvation that the Bible teaches. God did all the saving. It wasn't my decision. It was his decision. But the only way I can know that he made that decision for me is to believe, to be baptized, to add to my faith virtue, to have a work of faith in my life, to have a labor of love in my life, to have patience of hope in my And if I do these things, then I'll never fall. Right. We believe God does all the saving, but we have a life filled with responsibilities and duties to know that we're God's elect and have been saved. That is the ultimate of both sides. God gets all the glory for saving us, and we have all the motive to live a holy life for Him. Right. Are, you, are you ready to live a holy life for Him? May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.